Hello, it's Monday, August the 21st, and welcome to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to America's 45th president. I'm Bill Whalen, a Hoover Research Fellow. Joining me in studio today, Congressman Ro Khanna, a Democrat representing California's 17th Congressional District, which includes a good portion of Silicon Valley. He's the author of the book, Entrepreneurial Nation, Why Manufacturing is Still Key to America's Future. In the House of Representatives, Congress, Congressman Khanna sits on the Budget and Armed Services Committees. He also serves as a vice chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. If there's one issue that defines Ro Khanna as a congressman, and he's only in his first term, it would be the economy. His stated goal, to ensure that the technology sector is at the forefront of U.S. economic policy and will provide opportunities those those a changing economy and technological revolution have left behind, implementing policies that will create tech jobs not only in Silicon Valley but across America. That includes job training programs, economic development initiatives, rewiring the U.S. labor market, and debt-free college to help working families prepare for the future. Congressman Khanna, thanks for stopping by today, although you're no stranger to the Stanford campus, are you? No, it's great to be back. I uh, was uh, privileged to be a lecturer here for uh, four years and taught uh, economics at a seminar with students. And uh, that was uh, one of the things uh, I didn't look forward to giving up. Uh, there are a lot of things I love about being in Congress, but uh, I had really enjoyed my time here at Stanford. So two things on your biography that are just a political consultant's dream. Uh, <laughs> number one, you have a connection to Gandhi. I, uh, I, I do. I didn't realize whether that would would be a, a positive growing up, but that's what uh, in, inspired my interest in politics. Uh, my grandfather spent four years in jail during Gandhi's independence movement in the 1940s. And of course, there's a, a deep connection between that and the civil rights movement in this country. Uh, but when I was young, I was born in Philadelphia and uh, would go uh, visit uh, him in uh, Delhi. And he talked about uh, the life of uh, politics and struggle and that I'm sure left a, a mark of something I wanted to pursue. All right. Uh, the second thing that stands out in your biography is that you were born in the bicentennial year in Philadelphia, no less. How did your your parents were immigrants to the United States? Correct. They were immigrants. My parents came here. My father came here for his education. Uh, went to Michigan uh, to study chemical engineering. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mom came after he got a job at Roman Haas, which was uh, headquartered in Philadelphia, and so I went there. And that's uh, that's where I was born. And uh, it was a great place to, to grow up, uh, Ben Salem, right outside. And then your migration starts taking you west. You go undergraduate to mm-hmm. University of Chicago. Right. And actually, then you go back east to Yale. Right. How'd you end up in California? There's a professor of mine, Larry Lessig, uh, who had written this book, Code, and talked about technology and how the most cutting-edge issues about technology were going to be uh, relevant to the law. And if you were studying the law, you really ought to be out here. And so I came out here. Worked for Wilson Sonsini for a summer, uh, and then uh, uh, loved it and decided to uh, settle down here. Okay, I have to ask since you're a congressman from Silicon Valley, do you get HBO? <laughs> <laughs> I, I I have seen some of the shows, but I have not. Uh, you know what uh, show I'm going to ask? Uh, uh, yes, yeah, Silicon Valley. I've I've heard mixed things about it. Uh, I probably should watch binge watch it just because I get asked about it a lot, and so I'd be more prepared. But I've seen a couple episodes. It's Lampoon. I think we can agree the show takes yeah. a rather Lampoon look at Silicon Valley, the culture, how deals are done. It's satirical. It's comical and all that. What do you think that says about Silicon Valley and culture that HBO would run a series on it? It tells, well, me, I, first I, of, it tells me, first of all, there's a fascination with Silicon yes, Valley. Yes, uh, that was my point. I, was, I had a, uh, a professor uh, who uh, in law school said the worst thing is not being criticized, it's uh, being ignored. Uh, so... Uh, and Trump has understood this. Uh, so, you know, I think the fact is Silicon Valley 
in some sense, has won, right? They started out as all these iconoclasts taking on the system, taking on uh, big corporations, and now they are the uh, center of economic activity mm -hmm. uh, for the nation, for, for the world in many ways. Uh, and uh, that carries with it ex extraordinary opportunity, but it also carries with it a backlash, a, a greater sense of uh, sensitivity to, to politics and culture, uh, and a need to uh, really think about uh, their role in, uh, in the country. You have seen the famous New Yorker cartoon of the Manhattanites' view of the world, which is Manhattan, and then there's California, <laughs> very far from the distance, in right. Japan. In other words, Manhattan is the endobile. Is that true of Silicon Valley right now? Does Silicon Valley see itself as this enclave and then sort of views the rest of the world distantly? No, I, the irony is I married a New Yorker. Uh, Rintu grew up in uh, Cleveland, but then spent 14 years in New York. And she's very much, if you ask her, her for love, it's New York City. And she came out to Silicon Valley, and she thought, wow, they're, they really think uh, very, very highly of themselves here. Right. Uh, and uh, maybe not as much yet uh, mm -hmm. art and music and theater and culture and, uh, and also uh, philanthropy. Uh, but, but beyond that, I think there has, hasn't yet been a sense of what is Silicon Valley's role for the nation? Mm -hmm. uh, what is our obligation uh, to help uh, America? Beyond saying we're going to innovate and we're going to uh, help technology and create uh, economic growth, uh, what is our responsibility? And I think that's just starting. I mean, people have, after this election, frankly, they're, they're starting to think about that question. Mm -hmm. So your economic policy that you're, you're trying to get into Congress, you're trying to push along is the idea of if not recreating Silicon Valley across the country, the idea of job creation using technology in Silicon Valley, trying to, in some ways, export the valley. Yes. I mean, some ways to say, how do we get more regions to partner with the valley? Right. Uh, how do we harness that talent uh, in places that have uh, cheaper real estate in many cases? I mean, the cost of living here is outrageous. Mm -hmm. uh, that have a great work ethic, that have people who are willing to learn, uh, whether they're working remotely uh, from uh, Youngstown or uh, Paintsville, Kentucky, uh, or whether they're uh, actually creating jobs there that can support uh, the ecosystem. How do we transition to this digital economy and have people participating and seeing the benefits of it uh, around the country. One interesting statistic is that uh, the app developers, I, I read in, uh, I think it was the New York Times, that they are more app developers now outside Silicon Valley than in Silicon Valley, and uh, many in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. So there is a whole new economy uh, that we want to make sure we're ta everyone is getting to take advantage of. And your travels have taken you to Kentucky. Uh, tell us a bit about your trip to Kentucky, how that came about. So Hal Rogers uh, invited me. Hal Rogers is a Republican elected in 1980 uh, and uh, a very, very decent uh, person. Uh, Trump carried his district by 30 percent. And he had uh, these coal miners' kids learning uh, iOS software for Apple, Android software for Google in a paid uh, apprenticeship program and then getting jobs at the end of it, $45,000 jobs. Mm -hmm. He said, Roy, you ought to come out here. And uh, I went out, and um, it, it's a district that's totally different from mine, 99% born in the U.S. Mine is 50% uh, born outside the U.S. Uh, but there I saw this total fascination with uh, someone coming out from Silicon Valley and, and, and people, young people particularly, saying, we want to be part of this. We, it's not, not that they want to go work at Google. It's that they want to uh, understand the skills of the new economy, right. the manipulation of machines and technology, that are going to allow them to have uh, careers and diversify 
that region's economy. Okay, so when we say we want to bring jobs and investment to Kentucky, to Ohio, to Pennsylvania, what exactly are you proposing to do? Are you, are you talking breaking tax breaks? Do you want to create educational systems? Do you want to actually physically move companies into those states? What What are your priorities? No, that's a great, great point. I think, one, we need to create uh, the right type of ecosystems for uh, getting people uh, apprenticeships, getting them uh, the right type of skills uh, very aggressively. And that's not always a four-year college degree. Uh, some of it may be at community colleges. But we've got to get the, the private sector working with the local uh, education leaders with some paid uh, apprenticeship programs or training programs that rewire the labor markets. They get companies to say, you know, we don't need necessarily need a fancy four-year degree for something or uh, get out of our comfort zone and get uh, young people to say there are opportunities if we just get trained on uh, what, X or Y that are going to allow us to be uh, productive. Uh, and Tech Hire, which was actually started in the Obama administration, but could expand, uh, and the Appalachian Regional Commission does things like that. And it, they have to be very local uh, and focused uh, in, in communities with community buy-in. Uh, but the federal government can support those efforts and help scale those efforts. Second, we need, in my view, uh, uh, federal jobs, uh, technology, federal investment in technology uh, moving out of uh, Washington. We could create things like the National Institute of Health or uh, federal technology zones uh, across America. They don't all have to be in the Beltway. Third, and there are other ideas I have, but third is let's expand public universities. Uh, let's, uh, we know that universities spawn economic activity. Uh, they spawn uh, uh, entrepreneurship. Uh, how do we uh, expand those universities uh, uh, across this country? Uh, finally, access to capital. Uh, one uh, bill in uh, Congress would provide uh, capital gains rollover for investment in uh, communities. Uh, how do we get more access to capital in these areas? All right. So let's talk about the political practicality of doing this. So you come up with this idea. What's the feedback within your Democratic caucus? Well, there's some folks like Tim Ryan, a uh, new voice in uh, Congress uh, in Youngstown, uh, who, who loves a lot of the ideas. He challenged uh, Speaker Pelosi. He, he challenged Pelosi. And, uh, but, you know, he's, he's a, a thinking about uh, what is it going to take to, to get uh, aspiration opportunity in, uh, in different parts of, uh, of the country. But this is, in some ways, it's a bipartisan idea. I mean, uh, you know, Hal Rogers is uh, the Republican on... Uh, the Appropriations Committee thinks, yes, this is the type of thing we ought to support, an expansion of broadband and uh, expansion of, uh, of programs, of apprenticeship and training programs that actually work. Uh, the, the challenge is, how do we get this to be the focus of Congress? And, uh, you know, the focus of Congress is uh, re restructuring uh, all our tax code or health care. Uh, big issues, but issues that are mired in gridlock. And I think if we were to focus on things such as what is the pathway to creating uh, opportunity for jobs of the future for people in communities that have uh, not participated, uh, that you actually may get more uh, bipartisan consensus and things done. Interesting. Uh, what about the attitude at the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue? Have you, have you talked to anybody in the Trump administration about this? We've talked, I've talked to uh, uh, Chris Adele, who's their uh, innovation uh, a person, who's actually fairly thoughtful about these issues. But again, it's getting this to become a priority for for the administration. I, uh, I, I, the president made a big uh, hoopla about announcing more apprenticeship programs and how he's going to create apprenticeships, but there was no follow-through. There's no uh, effort. There's no legislation. There's no f funding. There's So 
Uh, my view is if you were to focus on things such as infrastructure, if you were to focus on things such as uh, uh, job development and uh, uh, supporting small business and entrepreneurship in communities and helping uh, communities uh, come back uh, and, and be vibrant, uh, he would he would force uh, Democrats to cast a tough vote. I, I say Trump has not forced me to cast a tough vote yet in Congress. It strikes me that if you want to step out of the aisle, if you want to get out of your trench, if you will, if you want to think of Congress's trench warfare, which I don't think is really an exaggerated uh, metaphor in some respects. Right. There's two sides, and if you get out of that trench and cross it, you're in no man's land. Right. Um, how many members are doing this right now? I'm not asking for a hard count here, yeah. but, but you, you've notably been doing this on, on the tax idea and the idea of trying to create new economy. What other members are thinking outside the box like this? I think there are a number, I think, uh, on both sides. I mean, I, I think you have Mike Gallagher uh, on the Republican side and Jody Arrington on the Republican side, freshman members who are really making that kind of effort on the Democratic side. Uh, you have uh, Tim Ryan and uh, Al Lawson, a new, a new member, uh, a number of uh, uh, folks, uh, Jared Polis. Uh, that I think there is a differentiation between the your voting record, where there are huge differences. And if someone were to look at my voting record, they'd say, okay, he's a progressive Democrat. And politics being personal and building relationships with uh, folks on the other side and respecting them and uh, not going on TV uh, and calling for uh, their head, uh, trying to find, think about things from their perspective. Uh, there's so much of it is uh, actually try, genuinely trying to build those relationships that I think are necessary for, for the country to move forward. Now, your uh, colleague from the 19th Congressional District, Zoe Lofgren, introduced a bill calling on the vice president and the president's cabinet to ask the president to step down. Your California colleague, Brad Sherman, has actually filed an article of impeachment. Uh, but I've gone back and done a Google search on you, Congressman. I don't find you talking much about impeachment, and I really don't see you in the weeds talking about this sort of stuff. So are you trying to just not do interviews on this, or is this just something you'd rather not engage in at this time? Well, look, I have spoken out about uh, my concerns with this president. and uh, what, what are they? And, and Well, I've, I've spoken about his comments on, on, on Char Charlottesville, I think, were very, very right. uh, concerning. And I, I will support the the move to, to, to censor him on that because I think that there is something as a country, not because it's against Donald Trump, because it's uh, standing up for basic American values. And I do think it's important that we have a transparent investigation uh, into uh, what his campaign did and that he doesn't get to intervene mm -hmm. on Robert Mueller and the investigation. Uh, that said, uh, I think it's important that we let the investigation play out and we look at facts and right. not uh, jump to a conclusion uh, before those facts are there. And so I have uh, said that I think it's premature uh, to be uh, calling uh, for impeachment, uh, but we should have a transparent, strong investigation and see what the facts are. Uh, but, I, but I also think that the Democrats have to do soul-searching in that 60 million people voted for him. Uh, many of them are decent folks. Some of them voted for Barack Obama. Right. And what is it that we missed? And how is it that we can build uh, a, a message and a vision that's going to earn their support, that's going to deserve victory? And so uh, the reason I don't talk much about 
Trump is I don't think there's a person in this country who's not capable of forming their own opinion on Trump. Nothing Ro Khanna or uh, the Democratic leadership is going to say is going to make a, a, a person say, oh, I, I thought this way about Trump, now I think something else. But what we can do is say, uh, here's what you should think about the Democratic Party. And by the way, we as a party failed you, uh, here's uh, what we're going to do better. And uh, we heard the message. So things could change in politics pretty quickly. If you and I had been having a discussion in uh, 1990 about uh, the Democrats in 1992, I doubt we would have been talking about Bill Clinton. We'd have been talking about a whole lot of other Democrats, all of whom took a pass in 1992, yeah. and Bill Clinton comes in and runs. Things can change. People can emerge. But rather than asking you who you don't like in your party or who may be a liability, who's not a good candidate, let's take it from the other angle. You look in your party right now, and you look at members of Congress and governors and other leaders around the country. Who gets it? Who, who has a message that you like? Who do you think is really a good national player? Who would be a good national ambassador at this point? Well, I don't want to uh, 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 duck the question, but I think that the message is incomplete. So I think we have to have uh, a, a melded message. Uh, one, uh, you know, the, the, the Bernie Sanders part, Bernie got, uh, Senator Sanders got that, uh, that, that people were uh, frustrated, uh, blue-collar, white, working-class Americans, uh, were working harder, weren't making enough, uh, that they uh, felt like they weren't getting a fair shot uh, at, at a middle-class life. And he said, look, I get this, and I'm going to make sure your kids have an opportunity for education. I'm going to make sure that you have a decent retirement. I'm going to make sure we don't get bad trade deals. I'm going to make sure that the gains of the economy go to workers. But I think what that has that was not it's not enough in that we also need to talk about the economic opportunity. Mm -hmm. And uh, we can say to to, uh, people in uh, Ohio, uh, yes, if you're 55 or 60, we're going to make sure that you have a decent retirement, you're going to get health care, you're going to make sure that uh, you get uh, the the, the wages that you deserve, but we're also going to make sure that your kids have a shot at uh, uh, creating wealth and uh, having a great opportunity in the private sector and being part of the new jobs and, and the new industry. Uh, and that uh, aspirational message, uh, I think, uh, is uh, something that has to be added to uh, whoever runs. So maybe if we combined an aspirational economic message with some of the uh, things that Bernie Sanders is talking about, we would have an economic vision. And then we need a, a vision of a common American identity. Mm-hmm. And what does that mean? What What is it? How are how are uh, people in Paintsville, Kentucky, and Silicon Valley on the same team? Why is it that uh, the grandson of someone uh, who fought alongside Gandhi, uh, what do I have in common with the grandson of someone who fought in World War II? What, how do we define that common link of uh, American patriotism, of standing up uh, uh, for freedom and for uh, values of decency and tolerance to be a model for the world and working together to build a common American purpose. Uh, I, I think until we ha- touch that sense of uh, American, that, that what we have in common, uh, it will be tough to, uh, to, to uh, win back some of the voters. So Will Rogers famously said he didn't belong to an organized party. He was a Democrat. Uh, the Democratic Party is not disorganized, but I think if it suffers for one thing right now, it's if you think of a swimming pool, there are a lot of people in a lot of different lanes all trying to swim and be the first one at the other end. Right. You know, you have Bernie Sanders doing his thing, even though yeah. he's not technically a Democrat, but he right. showed there's a message. Elizabeth Warren, yep. uh, running for re-election, I guess, in 2018, and let's assume she segues sure, out of that and runs. Yeah. Cory Booker, yeah. senator from New Jersey, 
Who has uh, ties to Stanford? Stanford guy, right. Uh, here in California, Gavin Newsom. I don't know if he'll run in 2020. I'm not sure the timing is right. He'd yeah. have to pivot and run. It'd be tricky. But very attractive right. candidate, right. Uh, you know, touching a lot of progressive issues the Democrats like. Also here in California, Kamala Harris, right. who has the multiracial appeal Barack Obama did. That's a lot of choices for Democrats to process. Right. So do you, do you think just one alpha is going to emerge out of this, or is the party going to have to go through a couple years of reckoning this through, or...? I think what, one of the mistakes we would make is to get behind someone early right. and for the party to, to throw its weight uh, behind someone. I, my view is let there be 20 candidates and let them all have their chance of making their case, telling their story, give, sharing their vision, uh, making the case of why they uh, should be president, what makes them qualified to lead uh, the country at this moment. And uh, the, the traditional rules of politics, I think, have been thrown out by Barack Obama, uh, first-term senator, and then Donald Trump, no elective experience. So uh, everyone thinks they're plausible, whether they're Howard Schultz or Mark Zuckerberg or Kamala Harris or Cory Booker or Elizabeth Warren. But we start out with 30 candidates, and eventually it quickly winnows down to 10, and then there'll be three or four who resonate, and uh, uh, one will win. And that's, that's sort of how we do things in the Valley. A lot of people try, and... Uh, you know, then you get Google. Uh, so I, I think the competition will be healthy. Right. So you are in your first year of Congress. Right. You ran in 2014. Yes. Uh, you lost to Mike Condon, then came back and ran against him again, took him down the second time around. Uh, I remember our mutual friend Carla Marinucci used to write about your race all the time. I'd send her notes saying, please stop writing about this. <laughs> Let it run its course. But you beat him the second time. Yes. You beat him. It's funny. I looked up the numbers. You beat him decisively. You got 61% of the vote in the general. It was, right. it was a thumping. I didn't realize it was that dramatic. Yeah. So you head to Washington, and you head to Washington with Donald Trump and a Republican Congress. Talk a bit about what your expectations were walking into that. Well, I originally thought I had less of a chance of winning than Hillary Clinton did because you're going up against an incumbent, and, and, as you know, as an observer of politics, beating an incumbent is always hard. Anyone who would bet on themselves to beat an incumbent is uh, is being uh, naive. You know, uh, you know, you know. To use an Indian analogy, it's sort of like the George well, George Orwell short story, shooting an elephant. <laughs> if you've read that, where he just yes. talks about the British Raj shooting right. an elephant, you have to put a lot of bullets into the elephant to take the elephant down. Yes. No. I, 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 exactly. And. Uh, and Mike Honda was well-liked, and he was uh, uh, entrenched in the community, and there was nothing really uh, wrong uh, with him. But I argued that we, this is Silicon Valley, and, and right. we ought to have uh, national leadership. We ought to have a real voice in uh, the nation's economic debate. Mm-hmm. And so I went to Congress uh, determined to do that, uh, and uh, partly uh, determined to say, you know, we're in a moment in our country's history. I don't care that there's a Republican in Congress and Donald Trump's president, but we don't have time to just uh, to waste and, and, and to be quiet when we're ha- facing this economic transition, when uh, we need to make sure these communities are participating in it, when we're at stake is a question of what America's common identity and common purpose is going to be, that the Democratic Party I felt needed a, a stronger economic uh, vision, a stronger vision of American uh, patriotism is defined in the 21st century, and so I was not going to go tradition, be a traditional backbenching, backbencher, keep my head down, uh, congressman. I was right. going to go and uh, and and uh, try to shake things up, uh, uh, speak my mind, uh, work across the aisle, uh, challenge my own party where needed. And I came, fortunately, I come from a constituency that uh, rewards that sort of risk taking and 
uh, and bravado and uh, and, and uh, wants that uh, in our politics. So I, I've been very fortunate to represent this district. Is Congress as dysfunctional as it would seem? It is. It's not dysfunctional on a personal level. Uh, on a personal level, people are actually very decent and very kind. And you, I have great relationships with uh, Republicans and some Democrats. And, uh, you know, when we... Uh, when you meet them, you'll have lunch, and they'll be very, very decent. It's on a personal level, people are actually uh, much, de- much more decent and kind and thoughtful than you than I would have expected. If there's a sense of community, but it is dysfunctional in that there are not big things that uh, we're working on common ground with. I mean, the the idea of doing a 1986 tax reform on a bipartisan basis or uh, doing something on infrastructure on a bipartisan basis. That hasn't happened. I was uh, excited that I got to work with Kevin McCarthy on getting a bill passed that allows veterans to use uh, GI money to take tech courses. And right. uh, that was significant. It's a pilot program, but it's not, uh, it's not something that's going to uh, deal with changing our entire infrastructure or changing the way we do workforce development. So uh, it is dysfunctional. I mean, they, they, the poll numbers are deserved. I don't think it's any single individual's fault. I think we've gotten to a place of deep polarization in this country. So how do we make it functional? I personally believe in term limits. I think having uh, uh, 12 years uh, uh, in Congress is sufficient, two terms in the Senate. Yeah, no, you're not going to do the classic. Everybody who runs to the Senate does, this, does the same thing. They always say, I'm for two, two terms and out. And then about the fourth year of their second term, well, I've changed my mind. Well, I, I, I support it as a matter of, of, of principle. I never have said that I'm going to term limit myself because right, I right. think that uh, the, under this institution, uh, if, if no one else does it, then all the seniority is uh, right. based on, on your time there. But I, I'm one of two Democrats who supported term limits legislation. So you cap it at 12 years. I'd cap it at 12 years. I mean, I'm open to it, whether it's 12, it's 14. It's, but I, our bill does 12, 12 years. 12 years and then gone permanently, or 12 take too, too off and come back? Uh, our bill says gone permanently from the House. You can run for something else. But, mm-hmm. again, I'm, I'm open to some version of it. But when you have the turnover rate in the United States Congress being uh, slower than European uh, monarchies, uh, right. based on an Economist article, then you have to change something. Uh, I, I, would, I think doing... Redistricting and, and honest redistricting would make a difference. Uh, having uh, taking out PAC money would make a difference. And then I wonder if there's a generational aspect to this. In that, you know, my generation don't we we don't come with this view of we're going to have a job and have that job for thirty years. Um, not because it, doing that is bad. My father worked for the same company for twenty years, and there's something admirable about that. There's something admirable about. Uh, sticking to something and doing something. But I think uh, a, a generation of folks that look at Congress and public services, I'm going to go there, I'm going to do something, and then I'm going to do something else, may free up risk-taking, uh, may free up uh, uh, out-of-the-box uh, uh, actions because you're not uh, thinking about a slow rise up, up the ladder. And uh, so I think the more newer members we get and when we become sort of a majority as opposed to uh, a, uh, a minority, uh, that may help change things. I think you raise a great point. I think there is a very sad statement when a young member of Congress decides that he or she is stepping down, and the first instinct from the press and people to watch is, okay, what is wrong? Right. What, what is the scandal awaiting them? What shoe is about to drop? In other words, you don't leave Congress voluntarily. Right. And, and, and that's, uh, 
it's an odd thing, right? Because there, you, you wouldn't stay at uh, uh, Google for 30 years necessarily. Some people right. do, but you wouldn't you wouldn't uh, uh, stay in any what other job. There are so many ways to make a, a contribution, and I think there are other ways of public service to make a contribution. It's not that people are saying you can't uh, do other things, but it gives you then a sense of uh, a, a willingness to take risk. And I guess for me, part of my willingness and, and, and toleration for risk is it was an improbable story. Mm-hmm. The son of Indian immigrants, of, of Hindu faith, uh, running against a, a power, an incumbent, uh, getting to Congress was not a, uh, a, a predestined path. It was not something that was uh, expected. It was something that was I really wanted, I worked very hard for, I had the ambition for, but it's something that uh, uh, happened with some serendipity and some uh, hard work and uh, and, and some uh, uh, good uh, good strategy. But I'm because of that. I'm willing to say, look, I'm willing to take risk. I'm not. I don't. It's not something I'm so afraid of losing. Interesting. So we just came from a uh, leadership forum meeting at Hoover, where uh, a group of fellows uh, asked you a lot of questions. I thought one of the more interesting ones was. Uh, whether or not there's a backlash coming Silicon Valley's way, uh, expressed in terms of too much wealth, I guess, too much opulence. You read these stories occasionally about yeah. people eating the gold-plated steaks and things like that. Uh, do you think that culturally there is some sort of resentment building up against the Valley? I think it's ambivalence. There's the positive, as I, uh, as we had discussed, of everyone has an iPhone or many people have an iPhone or an Android phone. Uh, people are using FaceTime. People are Googling things. There's a fascination with technology, a, a fascination with the, the possibility of technology to uh, improve their lives. Uh, but there's also this concern of automation. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a concern about uh, uh, these companies becoming large and having all the wealth. Uh, so in general, I think Americans admire uh, economic success. They admire technological success. But they admire it if it's done, A, with humility. So uh, the arrogance, I think, sometimes of Silicon Valley can be off-putting. Uh, it has to be more Silicon Valley in service of America. And the sense that, uh, uh, that we kind of uh, may know better than other parts of the country, uh, which sometimes comes off, can be off-putting, especially as someone who grew up in Pennsylvania. You know, there's, there's a lot of great things in Pennsylvania. I mean, Pennsylvania has made a greater historical contribution to our nation than Silicon Valley. I mean, we, with Philadelphia, I would argue, right, and the, de- and the, the, the uh, Constitution. And, the, and more people in South Carolina have died in wars than uh, any other state. So let's have a sense of perspective that five-year exits isn't uh, what built America. Uh, if anything, Silicon Valley has benefited more from America, and now we're uh, reaping that benefit. And you know who understands this the most is immigrants. They understand that their stories would not be possible in other countries. I don't care how much STEM education and computer science education they had. It's the American system that allows for it. And given their privilege, given how much this country has uh, enabled, uh, what are we doing then uh, to give back to the country? What are we doing to make sure that uh, this country and the the, the prosperity is going to work for everyone? Zuckerberg 2020, are you on board? Uh, I think Mark Zuckerberg has a lot of uh, uh, great skills. I don't think uh, uh, being the president at this moment uh, would be would be something I would recommend. I mean, I think he'd he'd have to do a lot more to uh, want to do public service. You know, this idea. You know, I, I think Donald Trump may have ruined it 
for an entire generation of business people and celebrities. Because, you know, Axelrod's got this great theory that we always go for the opposite. Right. And uh, we may end up electing someone who's had 30 years of public service and is a, a uh, and knows every intricate policy. Uh, you know, but I think someone like Jed Bartlett on West Wing, maybe a Nobel laureate <laughs> economist, uh, maybe it's Paul Krugman's moment or something. So uh, I, I, uh, I mean, on, or you pick your econ, Tyler Cowen. Uh, so I, I, I don't think that uh, that the, 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 the moment may be right for Zuckerberg. Maybe he can run in in the future. That's my theory, too. I call it the George Costanza theory. There's a great episode of Seinfeld where George Costanza, who's just failed at everything in life, decides that his first instinct is always wrong. So do the opposite of your first instinct. So, <laughs> so I go with that. All right, so no Zuckerberg 2020. What about Kana 2020? <laughs> well, no, no, the, uh, but my, you know, I, I, I didn't think an Indian American <laughs> in the origin would uh, get to Congress, let alone uh, that's not going to happen. I mean, but, uh, uh, and... Uh, there's something liberating by, by that because when I go, if I were to go to uh, Kentucky and have had the buzz of Kamala Harris or Cory Booker and everything would be seen as, ah, oh, he's, he's uh, running for something. Uh, but I, my, my view is uh, Silicon Valley is a huge platform and I can emerge as a, uh, a national voice uh, uh, without having to, uh, uh, to, to run for something different. Okay. Do you see yourself as the second half of a ticket then? I don't see. I no because I I, I don't I, I don't know uh, why someone would. I don't bring a demographic. Uh, uh, shall, shall I check the boxes for you, Congressman? You're from California. You're an, you're an Indian American. You have a nice story to talk about. You have technology. You think outside the box. You're young. You're youthful. Democrats, young youth. That's a lot of boxes. But I think ultimately the the, the vote base. The vote base. Uh, we need uh, you know increased turnout uh, from. Uh, uh, the the Indian American community is what one percent of this population. Population, but I what I would love to do mm-hmm. is uh, be uh, if I could have the ambition is to to be with the uh, uh, presidential nominee or the vice presidential nominee and say uh, let me help shape our economic platform. Uh, let me help shape a uh, a, a vision. Uh, uh, where we can talk about a new patriotism for, for this country. Okay, and wrestling, that's one point for an escape. Yeah. Um, I'd love to speak at the DNC. Maybe, you know, the, the, maybe I'd, I'd, I'd position, I'd, I'd have the ambition to do that. Do you see yourself working in the House? Well, you've, you've said, okay, so you said the 12-year uh, limit. So you've, quit, so you've kind of said, I'm going to be there for a decade or so, then I'm gone. Uh, would you see yourself wanting to get into an administration? Would you like to shoot for a Senate seat? Would you like to run for something statewide, perhaps? So I, I, just to, to clarify, because we uh, don't want to leave uh, people with any confusion, I have a term limited myself. I've supported term limit legislation. <laughs> that said, I do think uh, uh, I, I, I do think uh, th- there's an extraordinary privilege of representing Silicon Valley, and it's not clear to me actually. The there was some article uh, today about how you know kind of shouldn't run for the Senate to, against Feinstein, and, and I'm not going to run. But uh, that uh, saying you should run against should one it said should and then today it said should not, and I I honestly think that I can have a bigger impact representing uh, Silicon Valley done well uh, than necessarily being uh, being statewide and and so I certainly I, I I think there's a huge platform that hasn't been uh, been uh, looked at right. uh, from the valley. All right, I'm not trying to put you in a lot of gotcha positions, but I'm asking this for the simple reason. Yeah, there are a lot of young 
Democrats now right. coming of age politically. Right. And opportunities are opening up in California. It's the irony of California politics. If you haven't noticed, we have the nation's oldest governor in Jerry Brown. We have the nation's oldest senator in Dianne Feinstein. And there have been jobs that have been locked up for some time. I, I like to joke that being a senator from California, it's not a crime, but it's like a felony in that you get 25 years to life. <laughs> <laughs> they, you know, She's been in there since 1992. Barbara Boxer would still be in there if she so decided. Right. Um, who knows? Maybe she gets reelected in 2018 if she doesn't. But if you are looking at another office in California, 2018 presents a huge opportunity to move because the history of California is governors get the job for eight years. They get elected and reelected. And as mentioned, the felony scenario for the Senate, whoever gets that job in 2018, if Dianne Feinstein doesn't run, they're in there for the foreseeable future. So Democrats like yourself, Gavin Newsom, Eric Garcetti down in Los Angeles, and probably a few others are missing, um, opportunity knocks. So I I think if the seat opens up, it's something you're going to, you're certainly going to be approached about, something you'll have to process. I I agree with that. I I have the benefit, though, of of, of representing a great district. Honestly, and and I I, I don't... um, High ambition, right? I think Lincoln was a deeply ambitious person. Uh, Gandhi was deeply ambitious. It's an ambition to one end. So I, I don't begrudge people uh, ambition. It's one of the things I always, uh, I, I, there's certain things I didn't like about Hillary Clinton, but one of the th- most unfair attacks on her was, oh, she's too ambitious. What what right. person has become president of the United States who hasn't been deeply ambitious? Mm-hmm. Uh, but in my case, I, I genuinely believe that representing Silicon Valley is a huge national platform. If I had represented a different district, hypothetically, I think there would be a greater temptation to say, i got to get uh, to the Senate, or I've got to get to the Cabinet, or I've got to get uh, to a governorship to have uh, a voice on the uh, national stage. Uh, but I think I can do it out of this district. Now, uh, maybe five years from now, we'll be having this conversation, and I'll be frustrated, and uh, wouldn't have been able to achieve that, and at, at which point I'd say, okay, let me try something else. But my counterintuitive bet is that a person representing a district uh, with Apple and Google and Intel, Yahoo, Cisco, LinkedIn, uh, talking about the transition from an industrial to a digital economy is going to be taken seriously. Mm-hmm. I imagine one of your calculations, too, will be how large of a caucus you're sitting in in 2019 and beyond. What are your party's chances in the next midterm? They're strong, uh, but there's it's not a slam dunk. I mean, the the uh, here's what we have going for us. Uh, as you know, the pres- the opposite party always wins seats usually with a sitting president. Uh, this president's numbers are uh, low. We can argue whether the the polls are accurate or not, but certainly uh, they're they're accurate enough to say there's an opportunity there. He's in the whether he's in the high 30s or low 40s. He's not at 50 percent, and uh, we've got. Uh, a lot of candidates running, veteran, good candidates wanting to run, stepping up. Uh, what we've got going against us is the map. Uh, a lot of these districts have been gerrymandered. Uh, we're playing on Republican turf. There are only 23 seats, I think, that Hillary Clinton carried. It's exactly 23. And so uh, we're, we're going to have to win seats uh, that Donald Trump carried. And uh, uh, we have to win 24 seats. Obviously, you're not going to run the run all, a clean uh, sweep of Hillary's seat. So... It, we've got to have, I think, to do it, we've got to have 50 really credible, good candidates and races. Mm-hmm. Uh, right now we're trying to, to, to do that, and we're on track to do that. Uh, my view is it's going to be close. Right. 
you need a message. The Washington Post had a poll out, I think it was last week, which asked, uh, asked Democratic voters, does the Democratic Party stand for something or does it stand against Donald Trump? And I think only 37% of the people in the polls said the Democratic Party stands for something. So you can talk about the party perhaps being a little too aggressive against Trump or just being too defined by being anti-Trump. And this is why yeah. I have uh, tried to talk about what the positive message for the party. Uh, what are we going to do to help communities participate in the 21st century economy? What are we going to do to get people to dream about right. uh, their future? Uh, because I believe that, especially with a president like Trump, you don't have to define him. He defines himself every day. I, I have yet to have a conversation with a voter who has not had an opinion about Trump who I've been able to sway in their attitude towards Trump. And so I, do, I don't under, I say, I, here's what I don't understand. I, why, why are we always... Why, why, uh, why, try to con why try to convert the already converted? Right, why, are, know, we, not, why try to convert the non-converted? That, that doesn't mean we shouldn't uh, stand for, for accountability. I mean, if right. we, I believe that we need to have an independent investigation of, of Trump and that he shouldn't be trying to subvert law enforcement and that's dangerous. So let's go do that. Let's vote on that. Uh, but when we're out there, let's be talking about uh, our message. Now, part of it's a challenging media environment. The, the media doesn't... The media wants to talk about Trump uh, all the time, and uh, and they they don't realize Trump is, is is a symptom. He's not the uh, the cause. What right. what led sixty million Americans educated in the, the the most educated nation in in world history? Right in in the nineteen thirties, I think I read somewhere that the average age uh, the average education for someone who was Caucasian was nine years, someone who was uh, African American was four years. Today, uh, Caucasian, 14 years. Uh, African-American, 13.2 years. We're the most educated country in world history. Mm -hmm. And we had 60 million people vote for Donald Trump. That, the, that tells me that there was something wrong with our political system, right? The 60 million of the most educated people uh, voted for this person. And it was partly because of a disgust with the process. It was partly because of a sense that... Uh, uh, we just don't like these incumbency and the same uh, same group of people in charge. Right. It's partly because we missed the aspirations of so many people in, around this country. So uh, we need to, to address that. I think the other problem is the political culture and that both parties are guilty of this. Both parties still can't get over the fact this guy won the election. Yeah. Uh, certainly Democrats, but also Republicans as well. And so we have obviously investigations. We keep on searching for reasons why Hillary Clinton lost. She could not have lost. Something dishonest had to have happened for her to lose. This guy somehow stole the election. But we also keep trying to come up with scenarios in which he's going to leave office, be it impeachment. I was reading a piece the other day about Steve Bannon. Now that he's left the White House, is right. going to start a TV venture. And so that'll give Donald Trump a safe landing place in six months and he'll quit the presidency. We just seem to not want to accept the fact that this guy's the president of the United States. Well, we shouldn't. Underestimate him. I think here is where, look, I, do I think that there are serious allegations about collusion with Russia? Yes. Do I think that they should be investigated? Yes. Do I think he made one of the dumbest decisions to fire Comey? Absolutely. Right. I don't understand what he was thinking. And if he fires Mueller, then maybe he would actually start to self-destruct in the presidency because he's interfering with law enforcement. So the Congress uh, has to stand up as Article One uh, for accountability. We have to uh, point out uh, when he makes uh, statements in Charlottesville that says people are very fine people are marching with white supremacists, that these are signals that are uh, not what we expect for the American president. And we have to 
uh, speak out about that. That said, we have to remember that 60 million people voted for him, and they voted for him for many reasons. Uh, when I lost to Mike Honda, I didn't go and say, well, you know, uh, the whole establishment endorsed Mike, and why is that? And all of everything that uh, Mike had, uh, uh, all the support from uh, uh, the local party, and why is that? I said, what did I do wrong? You know, and, I, and you know what I did wrong is I probably spent too much time with tech leaders and not enough time in uh, local uh, Pete's coffee shops. And right. I probably talked too much about the uh, transition to a, a digital economy and not enough time, time about the stench in Milpitas. And so my view is uh, what, what the voters want to, they're they upset at all of us. Mm -hmm. They want to hear what, what, what did we do wrong? What's our self-reflection? And what are we going to do better? And I think that's where, what the Democratic Party uh, needs to do. And we've got to realize that until Trump's there, if there's anything that's going to incrementally move this country in a better direction, we'll be for it. We, it. I have written columns suggesting that the best move the Democrats could make for getting back the House in 2018 is for Nancy Pelosi to announce that she will not be the Speaker in 2019. Republicans tell me I cannot be more correct, and Democrats tell me I cannot be more wrong. So this is your opportunity to tell me how wrong I am in this <laughs> assessment. But you do have to admit she is a remarkably polarizing figure. She is, but it's not clear to me that that's why we're losing uh, elections. John Ossoff didn't lose Georgia because of Nancy Pelosi. John Ossoff lost Georgia because uh, he didn't have ties to the district. He didn't even live in the well, district. Well, Congressman, they did run ads with, you know, cable cars. So I, I, I agree, but if it wasn't Pelosi, they would have put in Warren. They would have put in Sanders. They yeah. would have put in uh, whoever, if, 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 if they made uh, uh, tomorrow Ro Khanna uh, the minority leader, they would say, uh, you know, run ads about the liberal Bay Area Ro Khanna. Right? I mean, they will, they will define uh, whoever is uh, there. Uh, the, the, the question is, well, uh, what does she bring to the table? She brings, uh, obviously, extraordinary strength in fundraising. She brings extraordinary strength from her caucus. Uh, but she also is, we're also midstream. You know, it's sort of like a, uh, the fire at uh, Nancy Pelosi uh, is is talking when you're in a in the middle of a season. It's going after your starting quarterback or your coach. It doesn't do any good for, for the Democrats. And most of the people starting the conversation are Republicans for a reason. They want to delegitimize the... Uh, Democratic leader and some of the Democrats have bought into it. I think there is a way to say uh, she's our leader, but we can have uh, a better uh, vision and, and uh, ha understand that we didn't have that vision in 2016. So if you get back the House in 2018, you'll vote for her for Speaker in 2019? Assuming she runs, yeah. I mean, I, I, mean, I, I don't know if she's even announced that she's, she's running. Uh, but I, I, I mean, if, if, and certainly if we went back the House, it'd be hard to to, uh, to, to not vote for the, the person who ushered that in. Uh, but I, 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 I look, I, I know Nancy Pelosi, and we don't agree on everything in their areas of, of disagreement, but I will say this about her. Uh, she's a cause person. There are two types of people in, in, in Washington. There are those who do it because they want to be somebody and those who believe in something. And Nancy Pelosi genuinely uh, believes in, uh, in, in helping the Democrats get back to power and of fighting uh, uh, for a progressive vision for the country. Uh, she doesn't need the job. She was the first speaker. She's achieved everything. She's in her mid-70s. Uh, she's in it because she thinks she's the most effective at this moment. 
Okay, final question. I'll let you go home to your newborn baby, baby girl, baby boy. Baby boy. Five weeks old? Five weeks old. How's the sleep But going? he's in Cleveland right now. So. Oh, he's in Cleveland. Yes. So you're sleeping well then. <laughs> <laughs> Enjoy it while you can. Uh, you're on your August recess right now. Let's, flat, let's fast forward to a year from now when you're back home again on August recess and you're gearing up for re-election. Tell us what progress looks like for Ro Khanna in his first term. Well, one, I passed a bill, uh, and, and I uh, had made a big uh, issue about the importance of that. And the reason I was able to pass the bill is I was willing to work with Kevin McCarthy on, on the bill. Uh, you can't get bills passed in this Congress unless you're work, willing to work with Republicans. Correct. So I think progress looks uh, partly uh, what are the legislative successes I've had. Uh, more bills passed, uh, more things that are plausible in terms of uh, being introduced. Second is, uh, what am I doing in terms of the district? Uh, I do a town hall every month. I promise that. Uh, am I accessible enough? Are voters being able to reach me if they have issues? Or are there uh, the issues that are coming to our office or the constituent issues being addressed, whether it's airport noise or uh, the odor issue? Uh, am I really looking after the, uh, the needs of the community and, and voters? And they, they need to have a sense that I am. Uh, and then finally, um, what am I doing to help uh, bring this country together? Uh, we live in a deeply polarized time. We live in a time of economic divide by geography. We live in a time of uh, divide by party. Uh, we live in a time of divide uh, by culture. Uh, people want folks who are going to give some hope, some uh, reason to believe that, uh, that our country is going to make it out of this stronger and better. I get the largest applause in my district at town halls when I talk about uh, how we have an obligation not just to help our own district, but to think about our role in uh, uh, finding common ground and helping this country and partnering with uh, people in other parts of this country. And they come up to me and say, that's great. Uh, that's great that you're doing it. Think how counterintuitive that is that you've got a congressman talking about uh, jobs, not only in, not in his district, but in other districts. But there's a, there's a hunger, uh, I believe, at least in my district, for people who are going to think about the country. And, uh, uh, and, and that, uh, I think, in the long run will uh, hopefully serve me well. That may be your best accomplishment so far, that you could go home to a town hall and get applause. A lot of members are getting rude receptions. <laughs> I've got a great district. Congressman Rokana, thanks for coming by today. Thank you. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes and tell your friends about us. You can find the Hoover Institution online at www.hoover.org. While you're there, sign up for the Hoover Daily Report, which delivers the best work of Hoover's fellows to your inbox every business day. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. Congressman Ro Khanna is on Twitter, and his Twitter handle is at Ro Khanna. That's R-O-K-H-A-N-N-A, at Ro Khanna. Anything else I should highlight? It's great. It's been great being on. Terrific. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.